The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing varicoceles, their impact on male fertility, and what to do about them. For this topic, we've invited Dr. Philip Cheng. Dr. Cheng is a urologist at EVRMA, New Jersey. He graduated with honors from Baylor College of Medicine, after which he did a surgery internship and a urology residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He then went on to complete a fellowship in genitourinary reconstruction and andrology with Dr. James Hodeling at the University of Utah. Dr. Cheng is also the author of several peer-reviewed publications, and he's currently one of the leading physicians at RMA Men's Health. Dr. Cheng, welcome to FertiliPod, and thank you so, so much for taking the time to be here with us. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to work here at RMA and grow this men's health practice, which is still pretty new, and I'm happy to uh, discuss some men's health issues. Awesome. Let's turn right in then. We, we're going to talk about mostly varicoceles and what the real impact is, what options we have to treat them. Let's start from the very beginning. What what are varicoceles and how common are they? Good question. So varicoceles are dilated veins in the scrotum. And overall, they're pretty common, especially for, for me as a uh, male fertility specialist. Um, generally, over 50% of the men that I see for uh, infertility consultations have varicoceles. Um, in the general population, it's probably about... Um, 15% of men, many of which have no idea that they have them because most of the time they're asymptomatic and small. And some of the main causes, we think it's likely genetics, um, just faulty valves that lead to backflow of of blood through veins that are supposed to be draining blood away from the testicles against gravity. This tends to happen during puberty as the size of the testicles get larger. There's an increase in blood flow. And there are is a specific instance um, where there could be some anatomic abnormalities that lead to varicoceles when the superior mesenteric artery clamps down on the left renal vein lying on top of the abdominal aorta. Um, and this pressure lead, can lead to um, a, a large varicocele on the left side. Um, also masses that um, involve the kidney um, can potentially cause varicoceles on either side. How, I understand there is a grading system for varicoceles. How do you grade them? Um, and what does this grading system imply? Um, in terms of the grading scale, they're generally graded one, two, or three. Uh, a grade one varicocele is is a varicocele that I can feel on exam, uh, but only with Valsalva. So I have the patients, uh, when I'm doing a general exam, I'll have the patients um, take a deep breath, hold it, and kind of squeeze their abdominal muscles, puts 
in, um, increase in intradominal pressure. Um, and if that causes dilation of these veins, that's a grade one. A grade two varicocele is one that's palpable without Valsalva. Um, and a grade three varicocele is a varicocele that's so large, you don't even need to do an exam. You can just see it. And it has a classic um, bag of worms appearance in the scrotum. Finally, a varicocele that can't be felt on exam, but can be identified on a scrotal ultrasound, that's called a subclinical varicocele. What are, what are the impacts of the grades? Does this have a correlation with severity um, of, I mean, with, with symptomatology or with impact on fertility at all? Absolutely. Definitely. Generally, the higher the grade, the more of the potential negative impact these varicoceles could have. One thing that's unknown about varicoceles is why only some of them cause um, a negative impact on sperm um, and on, on the testicles in general. Um, but in general, the larger varicoceles tend to cause more damage. Also, if they're bilateral, um, that's something that um, I think generally has more of a negative impact than just a unilateral varicocele. In some cases, varicoceles are so large they cause atrophy of the testicles, um, which certainly has a negative impact on both sperm production and testosterone production. Um, but most of the times, um, these varicoceles are incidental, aren't causing issues with testicular atrophy, um, don't cause any significant impairments of, of CNLs parameters. And when they when they do cause infertility or when they do affect male fertility, what is the mechanism of this? Is it mostly a temperature problem or what is the what is the mechanism for the observed effect? So yeah, it's still not completely understood, but um, there are several theories out there. Um, one leading theory is just the temperature of, of, the, of the scrotum and the testicles. These dilated veins can increase the temperature of the testicles, which we know can have a negative impact on sperm. The sperm is very temperature sensitive, which is why uh, the testicles sit in the scrotum, um, which makes them a couple degrees cooler than intra-abdominal temperatures. These varicoceles can also increase reactive oxygen species in the area, causing a negative impact on sperm as well. So those are typically the two uh, main theories that I explain to patients. And aside from the fertility and the and the potential affection of sperm parameters, do varicoceles have any impact on men's health aside from fertility itself? Great question. Um, patients ask me this every day. Um, they want to know. Do they need to do anything about their varicoceles for their general health? In general, varicoceles really only can have a negative impact on the testicles. So that involves sperm and um, testosterone production. So having large varicoceles can uh, lead to hypogonadism. I don't typically treat these surgically solely for boosting someone's testosterone, um, but it is something that can be an added benefit to, to surgical repair. Besides those two factors, that's really about it. There has been some studies looking into how varicocele repair potentially could improve sexual function in men. Um, so that's something that um, is a potential benefit or I guess potential negative impact of varicoceles you know, on erectile function, um, but I don't think it's significant. And Let's move on to the, to the fertility side of things. In terms of affection of male fertility, of sperm quality, 
what is the impact that varicoceles have? Is this a given that every time there is a varicocele, there will be a problem, or or what, how do we how do we? So I would say over fifty percent of men with varicoceles um, don't have any negative impact from them. In the ones who do, it can really affect any of their semen analysis parameters. Um, it can lead to lower concentration, lower motility, um, and lower morphology. It's hard to, in, in a lot of instances, male infertility is multifactorial. So um, it's hard to say how much the varicocele is impacting things, but um, I usually take kind of a broad look. What are different factors in this patient that could cause uh, fertility issues? And is there potential to for improvement if I fix these varicoceles? How large are they? Are they on both sides? And what are their overall goals in terms of their uh, fertility care and treatment? When somebody has a varicocele and we've decided that their uh, semen parameters are abnormal and this may be contributing to that, we want to treat this varicocele. What can we do about it? What are some of our options here? So the main treatment option for varicoceles is a microsurgical varicocelectomy. That's the procedure that I do. The way the procedure works, it's a small procedure under general anesthesia that's done um, as a day surgery. Uh, I make small groin incisions and I do a subinguinal approach. Um, you can also do a large, um, uh, an inguinal approach higher up. Um, I dissect down to the spermatic cord and um, open up the spermatic fascia, um, identify all of the dilated veins that are present. I use a Doppler probe to ensure that I'm not um, ligating the testicular arteries. Um, and I, I ligate all of the veins, uh, leaving behind the arteries, lymphatics, um, the vas deferens, um, and um, the, the muscle fibers behind. Um, I close the incisions and um, the whole surgery takes about an hour per side. Um, and generally we see improvement in sperm parameters uh, within three to six months after surgery and about two thirds of patients that undergo surgical repair. Wow, that is actually much higher than I than I expected. But, but I, I expected it to be a smaller percentage of people that improved after the surgery. Yeah, I do think that there is some selection bias because I tend not to do varicocelectomies for patients with unilateral grade one varicoceles. I'm most often doing them in cases of bilateral varicoceles or uh, grade two or grade three varicoceles, just because I think that these patients uh, have more potential for improvement. Sure, yeah, that, that makes sense. And aside from surgery, I've read a couple papers on um, a couple of newer papers on the alternative of embolization. Um, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are on this and where where is this today? Yeah, so there are different techniques for uh, repairing varicoceles. Um, in the pediatric population, it's often done laparoscopically where the gonadal vein is just ligated really high up. Um, and so you're finding the veins uh, through an intra-abdominal approach um, and, and just clipping them. Um, some surgeons will do this without a microscope, which I advise against because I do think that there's a higher risk of um, injuring 
the arterial supply to the testicles and leading to atrophy of the testicles, or just not doing an adequate job where you're not actually ligating all of the veins, and that can lead to recurrence. Um, embolization is an option that typically interventional radiology will do. Some studies show pretty comparable results between um, um, IR embolization and microsurgical varicocelectomy. Um, I think a big issue is just um, access to um, this type of procedure. And in the urology world, it's kind of the gold standard to do a microsurgical varicocelectomy uh, for a good reason. But I do think that if someone has access to an experienced um, interventional radiologist who, who does a lot of minimally invasive embolizations, um, that's a potential option as well. That is typically something that I will send patients uh, for if they have varicocele recurrence. I will do redo procedures, but sometimes it's good to try a different technique and see if that leads to a better result. But that's most cases will not recur. Uh, the other question I wanted to ask you was about alternative options rather than sort of the, the mechanical solution. There are a number of papers out there about the role of antioxidants to improve sperm quality in men uh, with varicoceles. What is what is your view on on the role of antioxidants for this particular purpose? That's a great question. That's a huge area within the fields of uh, infertility. I think on both the male and female side, and and there are certainly some uh, reproductive urologists who incorporate supplements and antioxidants into their practice and have you know, all of their patients on these regimens. In general, the data is really poor. You know, there's a recent randomized controlled trial in fertility and sterility looking at um, antioxidants for men with um, abnormal sperm concentration, motility, uh, morphology, or DNA fragmentation. And there have been lots of different antioxidants and supplements that have been studied, um, anywhere from, you know, vitamin C and vitamin E to um, selenium, um, zinc, folic acid, L-carnitine, you know, you name it. There are so many different uh, products on the market that you can find. I constantly have patients emailing me, sending me pictures of different supplements they've bought and asking me if they think it's okay. Um, and in this particular randomized controlled trial and others that I've read, there haven't been any benefit from, from these supplements. Um, no improvement in semen parameters or DNA fragmentation. There also hasn't been shown to be an improvement in IVF outcomes or uh, pregnancy rates from taking these. There is a um, randomized controlled trial looking specifically at folic acid and zinc supplementation that actually showed a potential increase in DNA fragmentation in the group that um, was given supplements instead of placebo. Um, so I, I think that highlights the fact that supplements not only could be ineffective, but they could be harmful. And we often think of them as potentially not helping, but unlikely to hurt. And I don't know if that's the case. I think the jury is still out on a lot of these uh, medications. So in general, I tend to be a minimalist when it comes to supplements and antioxidants for my patients. A lot of them do want to take something and have a better sense of control. Um, and I think that lifestyle changes have a bigger impact than taking supplements, um, but those can be a lot harder to, to make. Lifestyle changes such as which one? Um, weight loss. Uh, smoking cessation, alcohol cessation, all things that my patients hate 
you know, to hear from me. Um, <laughs> Everything nobody uh, wants to do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think it's important to kind of understand where people's goals are and, and be realistic with them. So patients that come to me with um, a goal to do absolutely everything in their power to avoid intervention like IVF, um, especially in a situation where we have really poor testing analysis parameters. Um, that's a situation where I really uh, stress the importance of making these changes because they can have an impact. It's not gonna be right away, um, but um, I think it can make a difference in certain cases. Whereas the patient who has maybe slight abnormalities or someone who already knows that they, they really wanna do IVF um, and know that that's the best option for them, do I think that they need to, you know, give up their glass of wine, you know, a week? Um, not necessarily. So, I think it. I think it depends on the situation. But there are are plenty of studies that show um, kind of the negative impact of certain lifestyle um, um, factors, such as you know substance use of any kind and being overweight and um, higher having higher stress levels, things like that. Things that are hard to change. Um, my, my other question I had for you, you've kind of uh, explained throughout the episode so far, but just to kind of sum up a little bit, I was going to ask you, should every patient with a varicocele be treated? You answered that as a no, but my question is, could you give us a brief sort of summary of who do we treat, who do we not? Yeah, and so I like to get an idea of how adverse my patients are to interventions, whether that is surgery or whether that is assisted reproduction. Um, and so I definitely take those factors into account. And so kind of the goals of the patient, their insurance coverage for different, for the, either the procedure or for uh, assisted reproduction, you know, their financial situation, their overall uh, semen analysis parameters and their, their overall fertility workup. And so kind of combining all of these factors together, I counsel my patients in different ways. So patients who have severe impairments in their parameters, large varicoceles, either unilateral or bilateral, and a desire for multiple kids or the desire to conceive naturally or through IUI, I think these are the best candidates for varicocele repair. Patients who already have a plan to proceed to IVF uh, those who only want maybe one uh, one child, um, those who have unilateral grade one varicoceles or just a subclinical varicocele or very mild um, abnormalities on their semen mouse parameters, these patients may not be the best candidates. So in general, in my practice, I'm doing most, like I mentioned before, I'm doing mostly bilateral surgeries or if they are large. I tend to fix varicoceles in my younger patients who aren't yet trying to have children but want to preserve their fertility, especially if there is testicular atrophy in these young patients. So I see teenagers with grade three varicoceles um, and significant atrophy on that side, typically left. Um, and those are great candidates for repair because I want to preserve their fertility for the future. Any patient who experiences pain from a varicocele. It's usually a dull achy pain in the scrotum. Happens in a minor minority of cases, uh, usually with activity um, or you know, um, standing up, you know, keep patients, uh, 
standing on the feet all day, uh, they'll start to experience pain. Those are great candidates for, for varicocele repair to help with the pain. And so those are kind of the main indications that I think in couples that end up proceeding with IVF after varicocele repair, they may benefit as well. There are studies that show um, patients who undergo varicocele repair before doing IVF, particularly those with who are prior who had azospermia or oligospermia, um, have better outcomes for IVF, better pregnancy rates, uh, live birth rates. Um, they also have better outcomes with IUI. Um, I think that even in cases where there may not be a significant noticeable change in the sperm concentration, for instance, there may be just better quality sperm following varicocele repair. There are even studies looking at fixing varicoceles before microtessy in patients with non-obstructive azospermia, and they found an increase in sperm retrieval rates. Um, and so I think that is an indication as well, though it's tough to counsel patients on needing two separate surgeries spaced out by at least three months. So typically, you know, that's a, that's a pretty rare instance that I'm doing that, um, but there is some benefit. So I do mention that to patients. Yeah, uh, that's interesting that, that it would still have an impact um, even if you are going for IVF or microtessy. Mm-hmm. And so I like to tell patients, you know, even if you end up needing to do IVF anyway, like if we don't see the boosting parameters that we'd like to see, or if after varicocele repair, you're continuing to try naturally or through IUI and not successful, um, there still is potential benefit to the IVF cycle. Um, there is a select population of patients who undergo varicocele repair when they're pregnant. So I actually think that is an optimal time for some couples. Uh, couples who have to do assistive reproduction for um, their first child, sometimes fixing the varicoceles during pregnancy is a good time because it takes at least three to six months for us to see improvement in the parameters anyway. And that's a period of time where they're not going to be trying to get pregnant again. Um, so that is great for couples who know that, you know, they need to do assisted reproduction for child number one, um, but they want to improve their chances for being able to do uh, to conceive naturally in the future. That's really good for, for my couples who are on the younger side or those who want to have uh, multiple children. Yeah, that sounds like a good good timing strategy to kind of use that that break period. Exactly, the varicocele repair isn't for everyone um, because of timing a lot of the times. You know, a lot of couples don't necessarily have the time to give it three to six months after surgery. It could take one to two months to just book the surgery, then additional three to six months for us to see improvements. And then by then, if we're dealing with a situation of advanced maternal age or um, or just couples that have different goals in mind, they want to get pregnant sooner rather than later. Um, those are situations where I often see couples go straight to IVF instead of fixing the barrier seals. Dr. Chang, this has been this has been so great. It's a very, very, very enlightening talk. I promise we'll have more male fertility topics on the podcast and we'll be a little more inclusive in the future. That would be great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us. This has been another episode of Fertility Pod by EVRMA. Next Wednesday, instead of the usual podcast episode, we're going to be hosting our fourth live online journal club. Go to ev-rmainnovation.com to register. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. See you next week.